is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing something that might not get nearly as much credit as it deserves, something that adds a critical element to every great motion picture, something that has become an art form unto itself, and something that has a way of lingering in our minds long after the final credits roll. I'm talking about original motion picture scores. Now, before we get started, some ground rules. What we're talking about in this episode are motion picture scores, music, typically non-lyrical, that was composed specifically for a particular movie. These are not to be confused with motion picture soundtracks, which we had an episode on previously in the podcast, which are collections of music recorded independently of a movie, but are used to detail them musically. Now, it doesn't really help that the terms often get used interchangeably, especially when record labels sell albums that contain both score and soundtrack. Soundtrack is probably the more commonplace term, but today we are content to split hairs on the matter as we talk about the music composed specifically for a movie. Scores were not always a big part of the cinema experience. During the era of silent film, there could be no music in the movies themselves because the technology didn't yet exist to sync sound to movement on film. But theaters often had live music on hand to play along with the movie, or they played something over a phonograph for the audience. The idea was both to musically accompany the picture as well as to cover the sound of the film projector itself in the days before the projection booths. In the 1930s through the 1950s, we had a so-called golden age of movie scores, typically orchestral music meant to be an invisible kind of listen that sort of melted into the background. That is, until the music was brought to the foreground. Stingers provided an overt musical cue to punctuate the action, while Mickey Mousing imitated the action on screen. These were simpler musical techniques for a simpler kind of cinema. But by the 1960s, as film composers went freelance and changing paradigms introduced non-orchestral music into film, scores themselves began to evolve rapidly in style, tone, and sophistication. The advent of synthesizers made it possible for one person to score an entire film, and anyone who's seen a John Carpenter movie knows exactly what I'm talking about. And the rise of soundtracks as mixtapes to be sold independently of a movie suddenly made scores themselves a creative option rather than a necessity. All of this change was for the better, of course, as it helped to inform and inspire entire generations of musicians for whom the screen became a unique setting in which to craft their sonic sorcery. And it was to the benefit of us in the audience too, since our experience in the theater and before the screen has been improved immeasurably by the transformative energy that fine music brings to what is commonly considered a visual medium. I've lost track of how often I've chosen to relive a movie through its music rather than the movie itself, so a good score is near and dear to my heart, which is why I'm delighted to talk about some truly wonderful scores now. With me today is scruffy-looking nerf herder, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Editor-in-chief of the Amity Gazette, Tom Hespos. Hello, hello. The beaches are all open. Luggage boy to King Henry V, Joe Pace. Hi, Havoc. And let's slip the dogs of war. And joining us for the first time by way of Aquilonia, Guillaume Tournier. Glad to be here. Everyone, welcome. So, Chris, I'm going to hand the mic over to you first. You're going to be kicking off a kind of a twofer with one composer we all know and love who's done a couple of different things. You've chosen perhaps some of the most iconic score music I can even think of. So, dude, take it away. My, my movie is uh, Star Wars, and I, I feel like I experienced scores differently than the rest of you guys do. I, I never listened to them. And in fact, as I prepared for this podcast, listening to you know, say the entire Skywalker theme at once was a, a, a kind of a strange experience. 
when I was a kid, uh, I had uh, this two record set. I think it was two records that had that had a, a, a picture book in the middle, and it was essentially a stage play or, or a radio play of Star Wars. It was all uh, used the score, it used the dialogue from from the film, and it set it to you know this picture book that you paged along with. And I mean, I, I must have listened to it. 200 times and star wars score it's like i i don't know it's almost uh instinctual now williams forced lucas to agree to harken back to silent film times you know when a character screen uh, a light motif would play and we have light motifs in lucas for pretty much every character or uh in some cases group or couple uh there's an imperial march uh, a rebel fanfare there's the skywalker theme the leia theme the han and leia theme all of which i guarantee you recognize he mix and match them you know on, on the screen to create the score as i perceive it the you know for me a score cannot be separated for its from its movie and and i when I when I listened to those extended themes today, I would sing, oh, that was from the first scene. And then this this next segment, that was from later in the movie. And oh, that's the end credits. And honestly, it changed film, uh, f- film scoring because that became much more popular. Uh, Lucas had envisioned a, an orchestral score. And Williams was like, no, no, no. We want to do it the old way so that we're always recalling these emotions and how you feel about these characters and things even without putting it on the screen make you feel the things that the music provides and i don't know i when i listen to a a score now you know just a cd it's not something i do often i've listened to yours bill the mission that's a good Mm. one it's not the same experience when i when i listen to the mission score it it is a, a series of beautiful pieces of music when i listen to the star wars score it is the punctuation to events that informed my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but my moment of truth for this score is not the symphonic stuff. It, it's the cantina scene. This tune was, was a, a radio hit. It was a top 10 hit. Um, yeah, no, you couldn't huge. go anywhere without hearing it. And I, I don't know, I, as far as I know, that was kind of unprecedented at the time i don't know of hits that came from movies before that yeah you did get some but yeah it was, yeah it was, it was certainly not from a, it was not common and certainly not for a you'd get love themes you'd right get like love themes yeah, from exactly. some adult romance from movie love story or right, right yeah right. yeah exactly but, some chris christopherson too <laughs> <laughs> but but this was like wildly different it would yeah. sounded like nothing on the radio it, yeah. it, it's not pop music it's not movie music it's not classical music it's something completely different yeah and williams just williams created a whole new universe of sound in that scene and it layered that culture and that 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 galaxy far far away so thickly for me as a kid that that i don't think i'll ever recover from it I have a Pavlovian reaction when I hear the opening, you know, steel drone, that blinking, blinking, blinking. I mean, that is the sound of jocularity. That is the sound of a good time. That is the sound of me just like standing up like, yes, like it's on like Donkey Kong. Like I just hear it and I go, I go, Abe, I just cannot help it. I love that song so much. 
And I remember when we were kids, we actually had the, so we pestered my mom and dad. We wanted the Star Wars record, right? What we really wanted was that cheesy disco Star Wars theme that was on the radio with like laser sounds in it. And what we got was the original soundtrack. Yeah. So, you know, so it was so bad, so cringy. We got the OST instead. And so I listened to it like on our phonograph and kept thinking, I think the lasers are going to happen here. I think they're going to happen here. Now they're not. This is the <laughs> wrong, wrong place, wrong time. But when the cantina came on, that was like towards the end of like the first half of the, of, of the thing. It was like everybody, we were just like, you guys, <laughs> it's like, it would just come on and just transform the scene, man. It was so much fun. I love that song so much. One of the beautiful things I think about the Star Wars score is the very beginning, right? I mean, like there is, the movie going experience and when you're in the dark theater and then you get that first just wall of symphonic attack that hits you bam, the one yeah you know fanfare of trumpet that comes out and then you're like oh my god that's a blare here, right? yeah and, yeah and then the title screen but it's just i remember as a kid being like hit in the face with that yeah. here we go like yeah. it's like we're going into hyperspace and not long ago taking my kids to the the most recent trilogy i remember taking them to force awakens when they were little we're in the dark theater and i'm watching them right i'm not watching this i'm watching them for when that trumpet fanfare hits and we know we're in for it and it's just such a great great kickoff first i don't think there's anything else like it no. from any other film that i'm aware of so i can't think of anything yeah like there's there's actually a similarity uh, that i have to point out chris between like yours and and my moment of truth Th these chords that they sometimes use have just come to represent like vast expanses and space itself, like to the point where really like, right when they, the theme starts to slow down and they gets a little quiet and it starts to show the first spaceship, you start using all these little like augmented chords that, you know, Williams from his, his jazz background, those chords, you don't hear an awful lot outside of jazz, but when you do, it says to you space expanse like it's, it's become part of like the music lexicon now yeah. that's like how evocative it is i mean like yeah. when you hear that kind of music it just says something to your brain now and it's automatically associated mm -hmm. with with space and large expanses to your point there's a great moment in the episode when we talked about original motion picture soundtracks one of the things i talked about was ferris bueller's day off right and there's a great moment in that when they crib part of the star's opening theme when when those two guys take uh, cameron's dad's car and drive it and, and at one point they just they're just jumping over the camera and they did meet they had that <laughs> it gives you the sense of like okay you know it's, it's like i was they're, they're mimicking the starter story going overhead but it's also that sound is like it's it's space it just has this crazy epic feel and you know it just it it puts you right there, which is, which is hilarious. Guillaume, I'd love to know, is there a particular part of the Star Wars you know, soundtrack that really has always jumped out to you that you particularly, you particularly enjoy or, or get meaning from? Thanks for that question. I, I enjoy the recurrence of themes. Going back to, to what Chris was saying about leitmotif, John Williams has a very uh, deep bag of tricks to pull out of. One of them is, is the Wagnerian idea of recurring leitmotif. As soon as you hear a, a series of, of notes or chords, you know that it's going to introduce a character or it's going to add texture to a character. Or even, even if that character is not there but is being re referenced, if Obi-Wan and Luke are talking about Anakin or Vader and Vader's not there, you can hear Vader's theme playing quietly in the background mm -hmm. as if the shadow of that character happened to, to be on that scene. It's a, it's a wonderfully effective tool for one. Uh, two, I, I'd say is what we were describing about that, that effect of, of being pinned back to our seats, the larger than life score. And I think, again, I think there's a, there's a huge draw on 
Wagner's opera contribution, especially the ring cycle. Opera is a, is a performance form that is larger than life, and if you're going to tell a story that's mythological and larger than life, you need a sound that is larger than life. And we've associated in our minds, we've associated opera with that. We're willing to sort of broaden our suspension of disbelief for that kind of storytelling. And and to what Tom was bringing up, I'd say the other thing that I think that Williams is tapping into is hosts the planets. Something that I was going to get to later, but I think is very apropos here. Like there is there is a sound, as you were saying, Bill. There is a sound that we associate with expanse and space. And I think that at some yeah. point, you know, whether we realize it or not, yeah. we've run into Holst or riffs on Holst. And I think Williams uses that very effectively, right from the very, very beginning, the, the use of strings in every film where you have the big beginning, but then it quiets mm. down quickly and the camera swivels in one of several directions to go down to a planet. And you have a use of light strings and winds that's yeah. right out of the planets yeah. and then and we know we are in ex the expanse of somewhere yeah i mean there's so many science fiction movies set in space when they want to give the sense like you're in the void now it's always like light mm -hmm. strings I, they're like it, they have to be there like or, or else it just doesn't feel right like if it's not if yeah. it's not there we're like something is missing you know yeah as much as we're willing to have explosions in space because we know they can't happen without air, um, but we want them anyway because that makes it that feels right. We want strings in space, even though we know we can't hear it through yeah. the void because that makes it feel right. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, since we're talking about Star Wars, and we're talking about John Williams. You know, Tom, you had mentioned your moment of truth, which is also another John Williams soundtrack. And frankly, the guy's done so many. I mean, to everybody out there in the audience, at one point we we're discussing this episode, we talked about just doing an all John Williams episode. And then we talked about, let's do a completely non-John Williams episode. But ultimately, I was like, this isn't about saying no to people. So I was like, what does bring what we want to bring? But we could have easily have each gone with our own John Williams soundtrack for this thing, because there are just so many really, really good ones. Even the ones that aren't super famous of his are still just freaking great. So Tom, why don't you tell us about the one you picked and, and your moment of truth from it? I picked Jaws just because I, I love the ability to do things very effectively, so simply. And, you know, I feel like the, the Jaws theme just personifies that. Uh, it, it's so simple. Like, you know, even if you know nothing about like how to play a piano, you can go down to that little register, lower register down there and hit those two notes that are right next to one another and do a passable version of the Jaws theme. Everybody will know what you're, what you're playing. What, which, which, which notes? I'm not sure I ever heard it before. Which, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> So that you know, I, I read the story about how Williams sort of pitched that to Spielberg, and oh, what is I, I've not heard that seriously. Oh uh, well, you know, he just you know when he described how simply he wanted to do it, it was he got a lot of pushback, and he kind of had to talk Spielberg into letting him go with what he wanted to do, and I'm glad that he did because. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that, that thing has got so much, you know, it, it's it's just this little like chromatic, you know, thing that plays The two notes are right yeah. next to one another and it starts very slowly and it builds. And that's exactly what he wanted to do. He described it, you know, to Spielberg, like a train gaining momentum, something that's relentless, that is never going to stop. That's what you get out of that little theme that he, he plays, you know, and then later in it, you know, you see as you, it's, things start moving along and, you know, you get the shark, you feel like, you know, you're, you're, the shark could just come out of anywhere at any point. Yeah, you get these, <laughs> like, like little, you know, horn things going on that are, you know, again, back to what I said during Chris's moment of truth, 
they're basically like arpeggiated space chords. So like, yeah. you know, with played one note at a time, you know, so it's not, you don't hear it as a chord, you hear it uh, as, as a series of notes, but it builds tension because, you know, between the chromatic thing where you, those two notes, if you play the two notes of the theme at the same time, it is the most dissonant thing that you can play to your ear, okay? <laughs> and when your mind hears that, it wants it to resolve to something. And when it doesn't, it drives you crazy. <laughs> so you have all these little things that are just building tension in just in that theme yeah. where it's making your brain essentially go crazy because you're hearing a lot of stuff that needs to be resolved and it doesn't. You know how like in you know rock music or something, you hear one chord and you kind of know what's going to happen next. Like, yeah. You're always trying to anticipate the next thing. coming, And it's another thing that makes you go batty. So like this is <laughs> like using music in a way so simply though that builds so much tension over time like it's just it's such a masterpiece work out of out of something that is so simple and I, I just I love that about it a lot of the other stuff that was going on in the background like really just betrayed his background as a you know jazz pianist and you yeah. know session guy you know it's like Guillaume said earlier he's just got such a huge bag of tricks that he can pull out at any moment and, you know, a lot of it comes from places, you know, not a lot of people are hardcore jazz fans. And, you know, like you can walk into one of these films and then hear his stuff and, you know, not have heard a lot like it before. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's got this way of being evocative. And, um, you know, I don't know if you can say iconic about a piece of music, but I mean, that's about as yeah. iconic as it gets. A lot of Williams's work has become iconic. I think you might be hard pressed to find music of his that's more iconic than Jaws. I mean, that dun 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 I mean, not only is that an audio cue for just menace in general, like impending doom, but pretty much that's the sound cue for an entire like order of animals. Like all sharks are now tagged by that music. If you put any other music on a shark, people like no red X. That's not true. Okay. That's not the official soundtrack. We know what it is. It's you know, it's like if you were in a swimming pool and you put a kickboard up through the water, move it like a fan. I guarantee you, somebody will start going no, 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 like it is. It is yep. so close. You, you can't divorce the two anymore. You can't. After civilization falls, and there are no more movies to watch. The new when it's just the sharks. Yeah, it's, it's just the yeah. sharks and the sharks and and, and cavemen. They will still be singing this when they see a shark in the water. Like it'll go that far. Yeah. Uh, no kidding. I, I cannot think of another more effective piece of music to convey an emotion. Yeah, yeah. I, not a single one. I, I can't think of it either. And you know, I, I started to think like, what was gonna be the criteria for the moment of truth if you had taken this music out of the film entirely it would be a ridiculous film <laughs> it just it wouldn't work nothing about it i think would work at all yeah like just think about how long it is before you even see the shark in that film and yeah and how long it takes williams to just you know build up all that tension and and you know suspend it for as long as he possibly can yeah it's it's amazing if I'm not mistaken, uh, I've seen a demonstration of the effectiveness of scoring using excerpts from Jaws, where they take the music out and put the music back in, to demonstrate just how much how the, the existence of the character relies on that tune, and uh, you know, how many notes does it take to recognize what it is a person's referencing or singing? If it's only two notes, that's pretty iconic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fair. Okay. Fair. 
Totally. I mean, I did you can strip somebody it right say down, I can yeah. name that note and you know that tune in one note on on. Uh... <laughs> yeah, right. I bet, right. I bet if you just had to simply that low string people go that's jaws <laughs> you know it's it's, yeah. it's so deep in the memory williams does this like like with light motifs he's got these themes he's got the you know out to sea theme yeah that jaunty little we're going on a fishing trip <laughs> ridiculous oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Not. <laughs> right but he used that to kind of betray like you know just the, the false confidence these guys have that they control a situation that they don't control but then he also brings in various versions of the uh, farewell and the do right uh, which kind of, you know, it, it sort of speaks to, you know, the, the more mournful, plaintive notes of, of Quint and he's seen things and, you know, that kind of gets brought up again and again. That kind of brings his musical identity into it. And then, you know, these things kind of get layered on top of each other a couple of different times. So, like, they layer differently. There's a song in the soundtrack called Tug on the Line, which is like one of the first encounters the, the guys have when they're on board the Orca. And when you get to the end there's a song called Blown to Bitch, which is when, you know, Brody finally vanquishes the shark. And the same themes get layered on top of each other in both songs, but in totally different ways. And they create completely different feels. And Williams is such a master at that. And he does it in so many other movies too, but he does it very well in Jaws and it gets overlooked because the theme is so fantastic. <laughs> like the main theme is so great. I don't mean to focus just solely on the theme. I mean, there's so much more, you know, Again, it's become like code for, you know, certain things like those, yeah. those like heart glissandos that play like if something's like fleeing underwater, like, it, <laughs> yeah. it's so, like you know what yeah. you're about to see hearing the music and yeah. it's yeah. fantastic. Like, I don't know how he does that. I, I wish I knew. <laughs> yeah. I would have a very different career today. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it absolutely goes without saying that he is the, the master of creating iconic character themes i mean think about you know raiders I mean, yeah I, I mean, it had to be said i don't think there's more iconic character theme in movie music i mean we could argue although that, leia um, and luke's are both quite close yeah but i don't think that they i mean I, if i were to pick one actually from star wars it would be vader the, the imperial death march if you want to associate that with vader as a character theme it's probably the most sort of durable no, I, I agree i agree I'm, I'm just pointing out that yeah. that that soundtrack had some amazing motif oh no it had, it, absolutely i'm just saying you know it's easier when you're making a film about a single character too to really drive sure. home you know that i mean honestly but later i mean his jurassic park theme is incredible <laughs> right? that's why we could have done just a oh Williams yeah one. I, mean, I, I, love, I love far and away i think is, is a fantastic score for a for a mediocre film one of the one of the williams themes that i absolutely love is is his work on superman the original superman movie and, and like for a long time as a kid that wasn't just the theme of superman to me that was like the theme to superheroes in general like it just captures this extraordinary majesty you will believe a man can fly just through music alone it was like bah, 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 bah. i mean i was ready to go fight crime every time i heard that i was like oh man it's like you know it was but like so many of his scores do that and, and he's he's so great and he's so omnipresent that i was looking doing some research it's funny how some lists omit Williams entirely, almost like, yeah, 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 we know already. Now let's talk about everybody else, <laughs> you know? And it's a little unfair to Williams, but at the same time, it's like, dude takes up all the air out of the room sometimes. I mean, he's just... He wrote the score for the Olympics, for God's sakes. I mean, he, <laughs> he wrote the, the score for actual human endeavor. Forget about right. you know, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So there's, um, so two things about Williams real quick. So one, you mentioned the, the Imperial March from Star Wars, and not to get off Jaws, but... Do yourself a favor sometime in YouTube Imperial March major key and they and they flip it. 
it, it's fantastic and it's like it sounds like something you would hear at like the u.s air force academy it's like it's so like <laughs> it, it blows your mind so it, it's like when you hear like the toys are us theme in a minor key it's the most plaintive song ever you know but like if you flip, you flip that it's just it's just astonishing so do yourself a favor and find that someday there's also a great YouTube video out there where these kids in like a marching band found where John Williams was living and they went outside his house. I think they're playing the Imperial March or something. And he came out and like was like, hey, how you doing? I was like, that's just cool. It's just a cool for a guy of his stature. It's just kind of a cool thing, you know. Kids, there used to be a store called Toys R Us. Oh, man. You don't know it, but look it up. YouTube it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Google it. Google it. It's out there. There are a good deal of similarities between Jaws and Star Wars if you listen carefully. And like one of those, one of the things is the space chords, as my you know high school music theory teacher used to used to call them. Especially when the in the Jaws theme, like when the like those chords again, they're jazz chords, and they're used in Star Wars just as well to evoke that spatial, yeah. you know, th uh, theme, which you know I just love, and I, I wish I knew how to how to do that, how to make something that iconic and, yeah. and call back to, you know, the physical parts of the movies. It's it's just it's gorgeous. Tom, to your to your point, when you talk about those, it's still relatively self-contained. You know, when James Horner does the the Star Trek films, or when Jerry Goldsmith does Alien, or some of the Star Trek, the, the theme that you know was for the original Star Trek movie, and then later for the TNG show, that's present as well. Like yeah. it's it's you're right that it created sort of a, a genre specific use of you know certain chord progressions and and certain framing that almost became rules of the game. That you, yeah. you had to follow or else people wouldn't know what you were doing i have to say in the jaws soundtrack there's a song called quint's tale it's the music for which was actually i think it was chris's moment of truth during our jaws episode which is when quint is telling the tale of his surviving the disaster of the uss indianapolis world war ii and that scene gets so just everything it's so fantastic i never paid attention to the music to it before I tend to think of Williams in terms of his big bombastic fanfares, right? But I kind of forget that Quint's tale, it, that music, it is so eerie and it is so atmospheric. And it just, it just steps back and it really lets Quint do the talking, but it has this really weird sense of just menace and unease. And there's stuff going on in the music I don't understand. I just know the emotional effect of it. And it's like, man, that guy can, he can create atmosphere like nobody else. I mean, it, it was, it's so masterfully done. I'm probably gonna use that word masterfully like a thousand more times this episode, but I just can't get around it because it's, you know, but it's like, I think of Williams as big and bold and brassy. And I think of those first chords of Star Wars, but this is like Williams kind of stepping back a bit and it's even more powerful. And, and, and there's a fair amount of that in Jaws. And I think I'm gonna have to go and look at some of his other scores to see where else he does that. Cause now I'm kind of intrigued in like, what's his e other part? E.T. E really? Mm. I think. Um, yeah, E.T. has a lot of atmospheric kind of... Yeah. It, yeah, it did. A lot of light character stuff, you know, for the kids. Yeah, but, sure. But, but some, like, creepy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, go through some of the some of the Indiana Jones stuff, like in the Temple, in Temple of Doom, for instance. Mm. You know, there's some really creepy stuff that he throws out yeah. there. Especially when he pulls back from those big, brassy moments to just a single instrument, mm -hmm. whether it's a single woodwind or a single string whether it's Indiana Jones or Star Wars, and just you, you feel like you're hanging in the void by a thread. Uh, I love yeah. Empire of the Sun and Schindler's List for the same reasons. Like you have these great, gorgeous, swelling moments, and then it all pulls back to a single musician. Yeah. 
Well, Guillaume, this is a perfect time to hand things over to you because I know your moment of truth gets us off of John Williams and into something else, which is actually just honestly probably one of the most badass original scores that you're likely to hear. And it's a real, I'm so glad you picked this one because this is one of those ones where you, you dropped it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is a great one. I can't wait to talk about it. So talk to us about the original motion picture score that you chose and, and specifically like what, what about it really speaks to you? I picked Conan the Barbarian, uh, a score done by Basil Polidorus. And it is, I mean, unfortunately we're not getting too far away from, from John Williams because it is larger than life. Uh, yeah. I think it is also heavily influenced by uh, Holst's Planets as a Star Wars, and it's also heavily influenced by Wagner, uh, but maybe for different reasons. My moment of truth, I think, comes from a couple of different things. Uh, if it's a single moment, I was driving into work one weekend when I was living in Washington, D.C., very early in the morning, no one on the streets, and I was listening to NPR to wake up, and they were playing Holst's The Planets, and I had never listened to it straight through. I'd heard highlights, and they, mm. they're playing at one point Mars, and I'm like, this sounds very familiar. And then they play Jupiter, Bringer of Jollity. I'm like, hold on, hold on. This is exceedingly <laughs> familiar. I mean, let's set aside the fact that the opening sounds just like the Lost Woods tune from Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, uh, which I think was just lifted wholesale. But by the time we get to a minute 45, two minutes in, I was like, hold on, this is Conan the Barbarian. Like, Basil Polidorus just lifted Conan the Barbarian. Oh, my God. Uh, and, like, an outrage gave way to admiration. I mean, it's an on-again, off-again thing to say that good artists borrow, great artists steal. And the whole, as I've gotten older and studied uh, more uh, theater and, and more music, I've, I've come to understand the idea of, of originality a little better. So this whole idea that there really is nothing new under the sun, but creativity can be described as not necessarily how you pull something out of thin air, but how you repurpose, resource, or reinvent something that existed before. And, and when they catch you, you call it homage. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And, and I don't know, I, a part of it was like, oh, come on, Basil, you should have said something. But I think that moment when I was listening to the to, to Holst's Jupiter on the radio, I was struck by how much more Polydorus had done with it. Um, mm -hmm. Because when you listen to the Conan soundtrack, it fleshes out a whole world. Uh, there is yeah. something about the, the sweep, the orchestral sweep of the music, and it's fading away to single instruments, to strings or to oboes, that makes you feel yearnings for a place that might have existed. And I, and I don't know how this is accomplished. I, I don't know how this is done. But you feel nostalgia for a place that never was but might have been. And yeah. as I listened to it, I was like, oh my god, I think this is something that Williams does with Star Wars. I think this is something that Howard Shore does with Lord of the Rings. And I start to see sort of echoes of the main hero's theme in Conan in the hero's theme of Lord of the Rings. Again, this yearning for a, a place that existed a long time ago in a place far, far away, maybe existed, maybe didn't. And that is that is really where my moment of truth is. My admiration for the fact that Polydorus is able to make us feel that and mm -hmm. to frame the world of Hyperborea the, in a way that makes it feel palpable. I don't know what it is, the kettle drums, the brass, the sweeping strings, the, the, the single winds, but somehow it helps you believe that this place existed. It's the kettle drums. Yeah, I mean, it's very hands-on. I mean, one of the things I love about the, the Conan 
film is how it is not slick in the mm. slightest, right? It is very gritty. It's very gritty. Now, it's very. We're uh, talking about the 1982 Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Conan. We're not talking about the 2011 right. Jason Momoa uh, Conan. Uh, yeah. Okay. We're talking about something that was done. It was almost yes, like. We have a um, different Conan than you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, the Conan. Uh, ours was a governor. <laughs> yeah. The guy. Yeah, right. But there's, but there's something very, I think you're right to call it tangible. To, to, you can almost yeah. taste it in, the, in yeah. the, the filmmaking. You can taste the dust. You can, you can feel this, you get the sweat. I mean, it's, it's, it's not done in, in, a, um, in a glossy mm-hmm. fashion at all. These are people who, who you know, cut them, they bleed and all this other sort of stuff. And it's all done very close to the, the vest. And I think the, the music evokes that as well. It, it leaves like a, an aftertaste almost. I'm really happy to hear you say, Joe, because I was thinking something very similar earlier today about the fact that there's a roughness to it, that there is almost a dirtiness to it that makes it more believable. Yeah, that's the yeah, way yeah. that um, the way that Firefly sometimes feels more believable than Star Trek. Because you're like, no, if we got into space, it wouldn't be that clean. We wouldn't be, <laughs> it would not be that <laughs> that that regularly sanitized. Like we would be rough around the edges. And there's something about the Conan universe in the 82 film balanced by the Polydorus music that makes it feel rougher and therefore more believable. It's astonishingly sensual. Yeah. Yes. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Agreed. Sometimes more than others. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I was listening to the soundtrack earlier today, and one thing I really liked about the score, I should say, is um, the choices of instrumentation are really strange. There'll be a piece of music, and all of a sudden, like, it'll just go to, like, flutes or bells or something, and, like, things that normally they don't feel like they belong there. It's almost like what Tom was saying about how John Williams does things with the chords, like, it drives you crazy. Instrumentation changes happen, and they feel like the mark of a lesser composer, but they're done in a way like they know what they're doing. It's, like, the exception that proves the rule. And I think for me, it evokes these cultures that never happen, but independently, all these sounds are familiar to me. I can kind of peg them in the world, but they come together in a way that you never hear in the world. So for me, they're like, ah, but they come from Hyperborea, you know, and, I, and I, that's, it may, helps me make that leap, I think. And so the instrumentation is, is, quite a, is quite a big thing for me. Yeah, if the court of Kublai Khan had a, you know, had a soundtrack, it would probably have sounded something like this. Yeah. 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 Beware, beware. There is probably not a more visceral piece of music than the music that plays when they go into the pleasure palace at the temple and he, they're watching the goings on happening there. And just the, that, that music. I remember as a kid, you know, like when I, obviously I think I was watching the edited versions of this <laughs> film. Probably. I ever got to see the whole thing. And then there's that great moment where Schwarzenegger, you know, Conan's eyes get huge with what he's looking at. And it's like, you, you say sensual, right? And it's like you know, accentuated by the eye black that he's got going, but like, the music is, is such a perfect companion to what you're seeing, but there's, like you said, there's something rough around the edges about yeah. it. It's, it feels like it's actually being played by five guys in the back of the room. Absolutely. Who are having to work. And at, yeah. the, at the risk of waxing a little too rhapsodic, I feel it connects back to a lot of the things that we've been talking about. I feel that what Polidorus is able to do with music sourced from Holst is, is create characters out of it. As with Jaws, mm. like the music is the character. This is a motif you start to see in mid 20th century musical theater where the, the persona of the character becomes part of the music and vice versa. You can't take mm. one out of the other. You cannot take the DNA out of one or the other. And as Chris said, it's extremely sensual. I think, I think both Williams for Star Wars and Polidorus for Conan sourced from Holst's The Planets. That if Williams looks at it more in a celestial fashion, Polydorus looks at it as more of a mythological, in a more in a mythological way. And yeah. it, basing this off of Jupiter, the character, Mars, the character, Venus, the character. But he also remembers that these gods 
you know, had urges, had desires, had thrills and had disappointments. And you can feel all of that saturated through the music. There's an immediacy yeah. to it. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. It's, really, it's enormously really human. Yeah. 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 I remember Quite. my dad taking me to see that film in the theater. No way. He knew that, your dad was cool about it going in. He even he was like, "Let's go see Konar the Barbarian." Konar, <laughs> and like I, I remember though sitting in that theater and thinking a lot about that music, even though I was so young. Because yeah, just, like I, I loved like when they enter into in the Conan films when they enter into like a uh, like an area of commerce or like you know bizarre. Mm, you know, like, yeah, everything Lots of bells. Going on busy air. Like I love the music that occurs. Like it, it it's iconic and evocative <laughs> yeah. of that kind of a yeah place i just I, I love it so much yeah yeah it calls to mind the kind of place you'd punch a camel <laughs> <laughs> no, but... you haven't lived until you punch uh, i love that you guys have said it's essential because it's like you can almost imagine the sheet music was written on daphnis fabric i mean it is so like it just it just sort of pulls that whole thing out there are a couple of particular tracks in this, this score that really jump out to me one is Wheel of Pain, mm. which is the music when Conan is he's a, he's a slave. And that great scene where he's he's on the Wheel of Pain. He's just like moving this thing. And over the years, he just digs this rut with his own feet, just pushes this thing. He's just, you know. But like, I remember I was listening to that song and I could just immediately, I can remember the, the scene in the movie. But then also I was like, this is the sound of toil, of endless, ceaseless toil of the pain and of the sweat and and yeah it created these very visceral very you know carnal kind of you know reactions out of it which i thought was which is really cool um and then conversely there's a track called theology slash civilization it gives you this um this very key theme of, of conan you see in the movie but you really see it in, in howard's book which is civilization is inherently to be not trusted right it is a place where corruption happens it's a place where darkness dwells and you're better off out in the wild trust us on this one you know and that music so immediately conjures this thing like man big church not to be trusted big city not to be trusted i don't know why music tells me so and i believe it you know and it's it, it works it really works you know oh, <laughs> you know i'll also say this the, the opening track which has got one of the greatest. I, I was I'm looking at the names of this. How is this for a badass song title? The Anvil of Crom. Holy <laughs> moly, right? It's basically the big epic welcome to Hyperborea MFers. Like, blam! It just it just comes at you at a million miles an hour. I'm like, you know, skin is flayed from your skull, leaving these two great big orb-like eyes in your sockets. You're like, what am I seeing? But it's like it's it's so Conan, like, and it's it's so Crom does not care about you. <laughs> no, Crom does not care for the fragility of your eyelids. <laughs> he will laugh you out of Valhalla. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is the sound of Crom screaming. Like, oh, it's just so great. It's so so great. Plus, I I hadn't noticed. The soundtrack appears to be about as long as the movie itself. What the hell, Basil? I mean, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was that about? Not I mean, a wasted like moment, but it's it's it ends a lot like opera being sung through. I mean, it's the entire thing is backlit. Well, that, that that's why I took notice of it. Is I mean, seriously, the soundtrack is like an hour and forty some minutes long, mm -hmm. right? There's got to be no more than ten minutes without song or without music in it. I don't recall ever seeing a soundtrack that where it's like the musical background was so constant and i'm gonna have to go back and watch the movie again to pay attention to it because i was really struck by that i mean most soundtracks i'm used to i keep saying soundtracks most scores i'm used to them being well under an hour sometimes as little as 40 minutes right and this one was like epic and it's in it's in its length and you know 
just it, it just went on forever. It was really amazing. It was it was more orchestrally designed than many movies of its time, though, where mm-hmm. the that light motif construction was prevalent or becoming prevalent yeah. in the late late seventies because of Williams. The scene you were describing earlier, Chris, about punching the camel is part of a series of of the the intercuts as they go from town to town, market to market, and it has that lovely light prancing dancing feel with the with the the symbols in the background (laughs) and but it's all one constructed piece whereas the images and the locations shift when i think of this composer all i really think of and i'm ashamed to say i think of conan right i'm not really i don't really know of of his work beyond conan do you know what are some other things he's worked on you know that that you might know i had to look through my own collection i own an unhealthy number of these cds and i have uh, the hunt for red october he also did Oh, oh, sweet! Yeah, and if you, you know, for the late great Sean Connery. But if uh, if you're looking for something yeah. that is sort of brooding and and dark and melancholy yeah. and, and moody and really sort of establishes a feel and like you're constantly surrounded by danger, I think Polidorus is your guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, Russian choruses are simply threatening. That's a fact. Well, yeah. So we 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 have we exactly sub sub out uh, Carmina Barana and sub in Russian choruses. Right. <laughs> I'm not man enough to listen to that. Good God. Anyway, Joe, thank you. That was that was really awesome. Um, I think at this point we're going to jump over to Joe for your moment of truth, which brings me to a a score that well, this is from a movie I actually hadn't seen since it first came out many, many years ago. And I had to watch it again to prep for this episode. And boy, I'm so glad I did. And I'm so glad you brought it up because this is a great, a fine movie with some fine, fine music in it. And uh, it was a real pleasure to revisit this. So Joe, can, can you walk us through the score that you chose and, and in particular, the moment from that score that really sings out to you? Yeah, uh, thank you. I, you know, I chose the uh, 1989 treatment of Henry V by uh, Kenneth Branagh and it is, um, it's, a, it's a movie I love, um, a version of a play that I love. It's my favorite, my favorite Shakespeare. And the, the score by uh, Patrick Doyle is just, is, is phenomenal. There are a lot of pieces that I like about it. I mean, the, 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 I mean this is a, a play and a film that opens with you know, uh, the chorus saying, oh, for a muse of fire, right? Essentially, this is one where Shakespeare opens by saying like, I, I wish I could summon the muse to write, um, which makes me feel better about my own attempts to write um, <laughs> that Shakespeare writers block too. Even the bard had imposter syndrome. <laughs> right, ex- ex- exactly. And, and the test of a great score for me is its writability. Uh, I can't write with lyrical music. It's really hard for me, but scores, classical music is great, but there are some scores that I go to again and again and again. And this is one that has gotten me through a lot of, uh, of words on the screen. It's very symphonic and it's very orchestral. And then, you know, obviously, for those who may not know, Henry V was you know, king of England in the early part of the 15th century, and he travels to France to assert his, his claim to the French mainland as part of his kingdom. And um, it ends up at the, um, the Battle of Agincourt, as the, the English are actually retreating. They've been cut off, and they're trying to get back to England, back to Calais to go back to England. They have been on the march. They're getting beat up. You know, they've sacked some cities and stuff, but they're kind of running out of guys. They're down to about... Uh, 1,500 men at arms and, and maybe 6,000 longbowmen. And they get cornered essentially by the French and they get cornered and they're outnumbered like four to one. And the French have like, you know, 10,000 knights and 5,000 archers and all these guys. And the English are kind of looking around at each other and saying, oh man, we're, this is pretty much it, we're screwed. This is where Henry gets up and he gives the greatest, you know, real world pregame speech of all time. 
it still gives me goosebumps when I watch this version of it. When, even when I read it, I can't read it without, without hearing it and without experiencing it. And what ends up happening is, you know, some of the senior nobles, uh, Westmoreland and Exeter, some of these other guys are looking around going like, man, I wish we had some more guys. And it's, even, it's a holiday today in England, right? It's, it's St. Crispin's Day. A bunch of guys are, it's a feast day. People aren't even working. And it's Westmoreland who says, you know, oh, that we had now here but one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. And Henry takes that at a great moment. He goes, the heck with that. My team is on the field, right? He goes, you know, he says, the fewer the men, the greater share of honor. And so now, you know, Doyle jumps in with this stirring percussion and strings thing. And it, and it, it, it kind of ebbs and slows and it starts quiet and it builds and it builds and it builds. If you don't know this, this speech, it's probably Shakespeare's most famous heroic speech mm. um, given in any of his. And I'm, I'm actually going to read a, a touch of it because I love it so much. And he said, Henry's argument is, you know, we're going to win. And it's going to be awesome when we win that we were so outnumbered that those of us that win, we're going to become legends. And we're going to, there's so few of us that there'll be more fame and more credit for us who were here. And he says, you know, he that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispin. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin. He'll, he'll strip his sleeve and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day, right? And the story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin, Crispin shall never go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. And, and he says, you know, those who aren't here are the guys that are going to be upset that they missed out, right? The guys back home, when we get up, you know, 40 years from now, when the veteran of Crispin's, you know, the Battle of Agincourt gets up and strips his sleeve, the guys back home are going to kind of like cry in their beer a little bit and they're going to hold their manhoods cheap, is what he actually <laughs> says. That these guys are going to think that they're kind of, you know. Yeah. So the score during this part is so good. It's been used, and I don't know how many trailers have used this to sell their movies. Yeah. Because it's it's just so good. And you know, obviously the English win. They 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 killed <laughs> they killed ten thousand French, mostly nobility, and less than five hundred English are killed. It's there's a lot of reasons why, you know, the longbowmen and some other things. But I, I just I love that section so much that I, I it, it brings me to tears every time I hear yeah. it. And with or without the clip, um, just the music alone. And uh, I, I do want to jump quickly into what happens after the battle which is actually lyrical, um, but, you know, Bragg wants to give thanks to God and says, let the Tadeums and Non Nobis be sung as we sort of bury the dead on the battlefield. And they sing Non Nobis Domine, uh, Non Nobis said Nomine Tua da Gloria, which is not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give the glory. And, you know, they're picking their way through the dead and, and this, this Non Nobis, and it's actually Doyle sings it, is it Doyle singing, really? Um, it is, yeah. Oh, wow. And it's so beautiful. And it's um, it's sort of the coda, right, yeah. to what happened before. And I can't think of the pieces separately, really. They kind of go together for me. But I just, uh, I love it so much. Yeah. When I watched, again, that St. Christmas Day speech segment, I, I have to say the music was spine tingling. Like I had chill bumps all over my, my back and arms. I was like, wow, it was just astonishing. And it doesn't hurt that it's paired with Brian's, you know, delivery is so, is so fantastic. You know, he's got tears in his eyes by the end of it. It's just, it's just so astonishingly good. The, the Nobile's Domine, 
the thing I loved about that is that it kind of reminded us that there can be no victory without great sorrow and, and that, you know, it's easy to get your blood up before the banners fly and before the swords are drawn. But, you know, it all comes at such terrible, terrible cost. That's a four minute long tracking shot in the movie. And he's walking through this muddy field, just over, over strewn with corpses and wreckage. And he's got the body of his slain luggage boy over his shoulder, played by a very young Christian Bale, by the way. It ends with him finally putting him on this cart with the rest of the dead and kind of kissing his head, you know, goodbye. And it's just, it's just so sad. And there's that great epilogue where the chorus, played by Derek Jacoby, he comes out and he's like, yeah, and let's not forget that, you know, Henry VI kind of lost it all. So, you know, <laughs> right. It doesn't, nothing lasts forever. Oh, man. Like, what was all this for? For that? Like, it just, it just, it was so sad to see the, the flower of so much chivalry destroyed, you know, and the music underscores it so beautifully. So better for the French. Yeah, just saying. So. <laughs> Now, Guillaume, you've got, you're no stranger to the stage. What are your thoughts about this movie and, and about the music to it? It's gorgeous. It's eternal. It's, as we've been going through our different moments of truth, I've been thinking about what Chris was saying at the beginning about not necessarily listening to a lot of soundtracks. And I, as I said earlier, I own a few, I own more than a few, I own a questionable number. And I will often put them on in the background <laughs> while I'm, while I'm working, while I'm writing, when I'm grading, what have you. And there are soundtracks I can listen to and work, and there are soundtracks I can listen to and but not be able to work, where you get swept mm. up in the the memory of the film and you relive the experience of the story all over. Raiders of the Lost Ark, impossible. Star Wars, impossible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Conan, yeah, right. impossible. And the, the music that Patrick Doyle has composed for, for several Kenneth Branagh's films... Uh, including Hamlet. His Frankenstein one that he did is actually a, a, a good soundtrack. Absolutely. For Branagh's Frankenstein. They are a beauty and a subtlety where you can put them on in the background and you won't necessarily realize that you've been transported until after you have. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it, as a director for the stage, you want to be real careful with that sort of thing because for non-musical theater, it can be a dangerous thing. It can be... It is a conceit of musical theater, it is a conceit of opera, it is a conceit of film, but it is not necessarily a conceit of stage plays, non-musical stage plays. And it can upstage the action that is happening on stage unless it's synchronized perfectly. I mean, with, with very careful editing and with control from Kenneth Branagh as actor and director, the music yeah. swells and supports his speech. But if you were to do that on the live stage, you could easily suck the air out of the room from the person who's trying desperately to deliver one of Shakespeare's most challenging monologues. Yeah, yeah. That's a brilliant point. I hadn't even thought about it like that at all. So I, I think when I was watching it today, I was just so enjoying just being swept up by the whole thing. I'll tell you a track that from the score that I really, really loved a lot, which was it's called Upon the King. Hmm. And it's during Harry's monologue before the Battle of Agincourt, but he kind of goes incognito amongst his soldiers to speak with them and kind of get a sense. How are people feeling? You know, oh, I would bleed for the king. He's like, right on. what I want to hear. But eventually, you know, he has this conversation with this one soldier who's like, well, it's easy for the king. I mean, he's not going to die. We get beat up. He doesn't get ransomed. I'm going to die. After that conversation wraps up, one of Henry's officers come up like, hey, man, we need you back. You got to talk to the officers too. He's like, right, I'll be there in a minute. And then he has this monologue and he's sort of talking about, like just reflecting about what the, what's going to come on the morrow, right? And it's this great scene where he, he he's really he's really putting to rest any memory of like his wilder, greener days as this like wayward, you know, kind of wastrel, you know, perhaps unworthy of his inheritance. But also he's already showing this great acceptance of what it means to lead and what it means to be the one who makes these decisions that you have to live with. I thought the music, it made that scene really, really work for me. Not that Shakespeare needs music to work, you know, to your point, Guillaume, but I love that scene 
for the dialogue and for the music and they interplayed so well. And, I, and it hadn't even occurred to me how easily that could have been upstaged. So I'm so grateful for your insight there because I hadn't even thought about it like that. And I think if I were to go back to it and see it again, I would appreciate that scene even more for how it balances those elements. My moment of truth comes from this movie called The Mission, which was from 1986 starring Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. And it tells the story. It's actually based on real life, life events and dramatized, of course. But it's basically the story of, in the mid-1700s, this Jesuit mission in the depths of the, of the South American jungles. I think it's like right around like where modern-day Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay come together. And it's a story of these Jesuits who, you know, at that point, that was land held by the Spaniards. The Jesuits were there. They, they went to this high plateau, and there's a, a tribe of, of indigenous people called the Guarani, who were not particularly open to people from the outside coming, let alone Christian missionaries who wanted to convert them to Christianity. This guy, Father Gabriel, he manages to win their trust and he builds a mission up there. You know, he converts many of them to Christianity. They create enterprise. Robert De Niro is this mercenary. He's just kidnapping people, you know, like the Guarani and to sell them into slavery. And he has this thing of redemption. He joins Gabriel as well and becomes part of the mission. And then what happens, of course, is that politics being politics, there's a treaty struck and the land becomes Portuguese rather than Spanish. And the Portuguese have a different view on what's to become of the Guarani and of the missions in particular. And long story short is that Gabriel's mission is basically like, look, you guys got to get out of here. You got to leave because it's not going to be protected anymore. Gabriel's like, no, we got to stay. And, you know, and Mendoza, the slave catcher is like, you know, you know, you know, we got to stay as well. And it's all becomes a very, very tragic story about how it all, how it all turns out. But what underscores it all is the music of Ennio Morricone, who is, you know, one of the most, uh, one of the most prolific composers for film. I mean, he, I, I, I just have lost count of how many he's done. Extremely long storied career. And this piece of his was really, it blew me away because his music in this whole movie, it's kind of like a duet between, it, it, there's two very distinct musical styles in this score. One is very indigenous and kind of kind of paints the notion of who the Guarani are. The other is very European and kind of evokes the whole notion of, of Europe. He kind of brings these two, sometimes in contrast, sometimes uh, in cooperation with each other to kind of create this really unique sound. It's funny because this is a this is a score that I know the score far better than I know the actual movie because when it came out, this score was it just it just caught on and it became like one of the most popular scores in history. Like it sold like more than three million albums. I mean, I mean, just a huge number. And um, it was introduced to me by a dear friend of mine who was an audiophile, and he kept the copy of this on hand on CD. It's one of the first CDs he had, and consequently became one of the first CDs I ever bought uh, as well. Because the sound on this is so crystalline and so beautiful and so piercing that it was a great way to test out a sound system. <laughs> it's like it's like a you know, pop in the pop in the mission, have a couple of key tracks here. So sonically, it just has this real deep, deep, dark, beautiful signature on my ear. But there are a couple of tracks here that really, really strike me. So one is called Gabriel's Oboe. And it's from the scene where Gabriel goes by himself into Guarani territory. After the previous missionary had been slain, like they, they killed him, put him on a cross and sent him over the waterfall. Right. And so Gabriel's like, well, we got to try again. And he goes and he he just goes off by himself and starts playing his oboe to kind of signal to them. This is who I am. I'm here. You do not need to fear me. And that song, it, it's amazing because when you listen to it, it's got these opening kettle drums. Right. To kind of give this sense of, of menace and like a laser, all of a sudden this oboe music just cuts right through it. 
and it's this like it's just it, it's a tear inducing work of beauty and it's utterly european and it's in its nature it's utterly transcendent and musically it speaks to the purity of gabriel's intent like he's not there to hurt anybody you know and and there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack in this movie there's all sorts of kind of religiosity and colonialism and all kinds of stuff but but within the context of the story itself, Gabriel is actually not, he does not, he does not have an ill intent in his heart at all. He, he means to help people and this is how he thinks he's going to help them. He's just a very pure character and the music kind of cuts to that. And it's to such a point that when the Gorney find him, they don't kill him. They, they just break the oboe, like enough of that, you know, but they don't kill him because the, the, he convinces them through the song that, that he's not here to hurt anybody, you know, and I thought that's the, it's an amazing song. It's so beautiful. But the tune that really gets me in this one, that really I mean, it's one of these things like I, you know, Joe, you mentioned when you hear the music to St. Crispin's, like it just brings you to tears. This song brings me to tears every single time. It's it's not, it's like barely two minutes long. It's just, it's called Falls, right? And it's the music, it's actually played in the very beginning of the movie when we first introduce Gabriel. And it's, it's weird because in the movie, the song is rather muted. It's kind of in the background. It's nice, but does not have the impact that when you listen to it on its own on its own, this song takes on a whole new level of majesty. And it just starts off with just this simple indigenous, you know, woodwinds. It kind of builds and builds and builds. And it just becomes this massive blast of majesty. And as you see it, like just the, the tears fall freely whenever I listen to it. You just can't, you can't help but but be consumed by it. And it's a th and this song becomes like the theme that kind of gets repeated many different times throughout the course of the score. But man, as long as I live, Falls will be one of my top 10 in most evocative pieces of music in my memory. I just, I cannot listen to it and cannot be deeply, deeply moved by it. And um, I just love it. Now, Guillaume, I know this is one of your first uh, CDs you bought too, right? Is that right? It's, it is the, the one of the very first CD albums I owned. And <laughs> I, I agree with your audiophile friend that the, the clarity on it is absolutely wonderful. But that's not the reason I bought it. I attended a Jesuit high school in New Orleans. And one of the projects that the, the Good Fathers did with us is that they would gather us to watch the film together. Our first hmm. year there, our third year there, and our fifth year there. And at the end of the film, when the mission is threatened... By the, the the changing of the hands of, of the territory from one crown to another, the Jesuits plan to resist, but Gabriel and his followers choose to follow the cross and, and, and resist peacefully, whereas some of the other Jesuits who had been soldiers in a previous life, including Liam Neeson, choose to follow the way of the sword. And so we would break up into groups. After viewing the film, they would ask us, if you had been there, would you have followed the cross or would, or you, would you have followed the sword? And if... They're doing their job right, no matter what your reasoning is, your answer ought to change somewhat during your first, third, and fifth year, as you are learning, as you are changing, as you are transforming, and there's no right answer. It's just, uh. are they shifting your perspective? Are they forcing you to think critically? Are you moving along a journey and a trajectory? And so whenever I hear that soundtrack, I'm transported not only to the film and to those very moving scenes, but also those conversations and those discussions. Oh, that's awesome. Super awesome. <laughs> Super awesome. The very opening track is a, is a song called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And in a way, musically, it kind of encapsulates this entire story because it begins in very indigenous tones, right? And then the, the European strings and the oboe, the signature oboe, move in. And for a while, those sounds work in harmony with each other. But then as it increases and increases, the oboe and the choral piece, they increase in volume and the choral 
increases the, the, the you know, like this, this religious quarrel. It gets, it's beautiful, but it gets so loud. It just drowns out. It, you know, it, whether you want it to or not, it drowns out everything. And what started off as this quiet song from the rainforest becomes this blasting religious hymn that's, it's got, beauty and majesty but you, you can't overlook the fact that what was once there originally has now been almost practically erased and the only thing that remains are these indigenous drums that they start off as kind of the beginning and then they kind of end up in that song is sort of the ground on which everything else is treading and it's like that musically becomes this magnificent meta metaphor for the entire story and, and when you know it and you listen to it and you see what's happening i'm like that is extraordinary work that is really just beautifully beautifully engineered especially with the use of the flute that breathy breathy flute that i don't think we'd necessarily hear if we walk through the, yeah. the amazonian was, jungle yeah i think it's um, a pan flute <laughs> yeah and it, but, yeah. but we all we're all on board to agreeing that that's the sound of the place just as we were saying yeah. earlier <laughs> that's the sound of space this is the sound of the amazonian <laughs> yeah. jungle yeah, and exactly. i think Morricone, who's got that, all that experience with countless spaghetti westerns, has has found a really interesting way of delineating old world sound from new world sound. Yeah, well, this this movie blew me away because all I knew of Morricone before I saw this movie was spaghetti western stuff. So I thought that's who he was, not knowing like no, 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 no. That is just a little, little tiny part of what he is and what he does. No, it's like he did the music for the Untouchables like a year later. I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Like he can do anything? He's impossible, you know? But the thing with the mission is that this is the first score I ever had where I listened to this as an album, not necessarily as a way to relive the movie, but I just listened to this simply as an album for, for years afterwards. Like there have been times I hadn't seen the movie in like 10 years, but I listened to the album on the regular. And so it really became just, it kind of fell into a very, very special category in music for me. And Chris, I'd be kind of curious what your thoughts are. Cause you said you, you were listening to it earlier today and I'm not sure if you've seen the mission or not, but you seem like you're kind of like a little newer to this music than I would be. I would just love to get your thoughts on what you, what you thought of it or, or what, what it did for you, whether or not you'd actually seen the movie. I have seen the movie and uh, it's been a long time, but uh, I saw it roughly around the same time you did. And it was stunning. It's, it's a gorgeous movie that is affecting in a lot of ways. I, you know, it, it moved me. And a big part of it absolutely was the music. You, you've all talked about the instrumentation, and I think that's what really stuck with me. Mm. Those pipes you were just talking to, Bill, the, the breathy flute. Yeah, I, I still hear that. Uh, yeah, I've and, never and even seen and, this. I've never heard you know the, the thing. With, yeah, but now I, I kind of want to hear how this oboe functions and all of it. I mean, <laughs> it, the oboe is kind of like a unique instrument. You know, if you're going yeah. to use something, yeah. why it's, you know. <laughs> well, you know, we spoke earlier about how a, a particular musical tone can evoke a character. The, the oboe becomes the character of Gabriel in this, right? It doesn't stand in for the Jesuits in general or the mission at large. It really stands in for Gabriel. And Gabriel yeah. is this this one driving force. And it and it's interesting because the, the oboe has this way of just cutting through the rest of the music. And it's meant to do that here. But like Gabriel also in his own way cuts through every the whole scene in the movie. So, yeah. So I'm adding it to the list. <laughs> It's a it's a good movie to watch. It's it, a really it, good movie. It's a, it's a really it's a really good movie. This one's also a strong object lesson for score versus soundtrack because Ennio Morricone was really ticked off because he he felt like he should have won the Academy Award for best score that year, and he lost out. It was Herbie Hancock's Around Midnight, right? Won that year, <laughs> and, right? And Morricone was like, he's like, it's a great soundtrack, but you know, but there's like basically his whole point was like that was all music that was a lot of it was was recorded independently and brought in it wasn't actually you know orchestrated for the movie itself and as we felt, he felt like he got robbed i'm like oh yeah i, I kind of feel you there dude i, I really do <laughs> you know 
it's a great movie and, and it's um but it's also one of those where the soundtrack maybe overshadows the movie because it's been known so well it's just a great piece of music um it's just it's just, just fantastic so I'd love to do a speed round only because we had a lot of talk before we did this episode. Like, what do we want to do? And, and there's so many things to pull from. And, and our beloved editor, Derek, was like, how can you not be talking about X or Y? I'm like, well, because it's only so long and we can't talk about five million things. But real quick, I know everybody's got at least one or two alternates that they're probably thinking of. You know, what were some of the things at least you gave some consideration to? And, and like one sentence, though, summation as to why, why you loved it. Tom, you want to start? Yet another John Williams is my first one with Battlestar Galactica's theme, which I... You know, I'm like Chris, I don't listen to soundtracks on their own, but I will listen to that soundtrack on its own. Uh, the other thing that I absolutely loved, it was, I, I almost chose it for this episode, but like the James Bond theme, like, you know, from Dr. No, yeah, yeah, with love, like that, knocks you out. There's an iconic character, size and dynamics, that whole thing, and it's just like you hear that guitar riff, and now, yeah. Instantly think five, like it's yeah, yeah. Five so good. it's my thing. It's so it's so good. Yeah, oh iconic. God. You just you yeah. can't get around it. So, Chris, do you have any alternates that, that you're thinking of? Joy, I hate to step on your feet, but Star Trek, of course. I mean, which one? Well, I, I would I would start with the original series, but uh, Alexander Courage. Yeah, that 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 music is what could be more iconic, and, and all the films are good. Honestly, all of them are good musically. Derek uh, wanted us to talk about Blade Runner, and that is the Vangelis. one soundtrack that I have really paid a lot of attention to. I, I, I listen to that a lot, but it feels more like a soundtrack than a score. It, it's all it's all recorded for the the movie, but it feels more like songs than a score. It's hard to put on in no. the background. It is the thing about Vangelis is it's so haunting. Right, like his style is, and he did the Chariots of Fire. I, I, was, I wanted to bring um, that up, yeah. And yeah. he also did the score for the um, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Mel Gibson movie, The Bounty, which is the. Oh. Um, I, I find his score for that is incredibly affecting, and yeah. I actually use that as a um, as a writing score. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but to Gum's point though, when I hear Vangelis's score for for Blade Runner, I have to look around for the screen, like where is it playing? Because I actually it makes me want to start. Yeah, I don't want to stop and listen to. It. I want to watch Blade Runner. Like I have a very unique reaction to that particular one. I can't Agreed. explain it. I just I don't know. So. Guillaume, yeah, have any alternate choices you, you you came here with? Dances with Wolves is one of my two alternates, and I think just the sweeping sound of the Dakota Plains. I think if we were to all walk across the Dakota Plains right now, we would hear John Barry's score playing in our heads. I think it was perfect choice, especially having done it out of Africa. And I think part of it is we constantly watched that movie in college. One of my friends owned it. And anytime yeah. I walked into my dorm room, odds were that, that it was playing. We would just stop whatever we were doing and we'd watch it umpteen times. <laughs> it was most likely to be Doogie Howser. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, speaking to how scores affect you, like I can only really listen to the beginning of it with the ba in the background. The minute we the, the, the story turns, and the music really becomes more ominous and dark. I, I can't get any work done. Like I have to switch to something else. Uh, Danny Elfman's Batman was one of the very first audio tapes I owned. And like Derek, you know, thank you for bringing that up. I, I can't believe I forgot that. But to Bill's point, I think Danny Elfman probably was very conscious of the fact that this is, according to John Williams, this is what Superman sounds like. And so what does the other Kate Crusader sound like? And I, I've never yeah. thought to think of it that way, but like maybe Danny Elfman's Batman theme is a, an answer to 
John Williams' Superman theme. I think you're onto something there, Guillaume. I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. It very much fills all the spaces left open by John Williams' theme. It is so Batman. Even if you don't like that particular film take on Batman, the music, though, it's like there's a reason why that was largely cribbed for the Batman, the animated series. It had that weird noir kind of like this is music from the shadows. Uh, you know? <laughs> so it's just so, so good. You know, for me, a couple, a couple of the also rands, there's um, I am very fond of Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, Trevor Jones. And specifically, there's a song in there called Promontory, which is basically the, the song for, you know, the final battle, which is just, I mean, it's a simple song. And actually, you know, it's funny. I like that more in the movie as opposed to on its own, because that scene in the movie is just so freaking fantastic. And it's just, it's just, it's such a great, a great epic finale. It's funny, but I love the Pirates of the Caribbean score by Hans Zimmer. Yeah, which is it's like meme soundtrack for any kind of like just over the top adventure you probably shouldn't be taking you know <laughs> it's just like you know it's 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 part of the whole like that's the worst part i've ever seen that loopiness it's it's kind of a got an audio cue but one more i'll mention is um it's a score from a movie called miracle mile and the score is by tangerine dream and not a lot of people have seen the movie not a lot of people know the the score but the soundtrack is really weird it's very electronic it's very it's very techno it's just this really odd thing. Again, like the mission, this is a, a score I listened to as an album quite a lot. Hmm. Uh, and I just I just adored it. And the movie didn't age as well as I would, would have liked. But um, the soundtrack, I mean, the score is something I just, I just adored. So I really, really enjoy that one quite a lot. So, Yeah, Bill, uh, you, you, you didn't call on me, which was probably intentional for the, <laughs> for the, for the lightning round. Shut the hell up, Pierce. Because you probably, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> no, no, go ahead. But a couple I wanted to, to just take a, to, uh, Tip of the cap to one, uh, you know, James Horner, who had, uh, who wrote the second Star Trek score, Star of Wrath of Khan. He also wrote Legends of the Fall, which is a great score, especially for writing. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who did Alien, who did Star Trek the Motion Picture, and then later the, the Next Generation, and also Hoosiers, which I mean, we don't think about it, but there's actually some um, some really great stuff there. You mentioned Hans Zimmer, his Gladiator soundtrack, which is we mentioned things cribbing from Holst. He essentially just gives Holst some you know, wrapping paper <laughs> just brings it right over. It says, here it is. Uh, Who wants some coffee pasta? You like yeah, coffee pasta? Exactly. I love coffee pasta. Let's do it. And, and the last one I'll mention is um, a score that I absolutely adore, which is from the Master and Commander movie. Um, oh! the Russell Crowe one. It is, um, there's some wonderful old English um, that they put in and then some absolutely beautiful cello concertos possibly yeah. more possibly um, more of a soundtrack than a score because a lot of that music was not composed for the movie i i agree with you it's just where it's orchestral i kind of allow it in my own head where it's yeah, not you I'm know, with you. it's not you're right it probably does dance the line in between but it's very re-listenable and it's very it's very writable it's a hugely important if that avenue had been open i might have chosen amadeus because amadeus sure. that soundtrack opened my yeah. mind <laughs> good yeah. stuff good stuff now, before I go, just, just a, a final thought. When we leave the theater or turn off the screen after watching a great movie, it often isn't the images that linger so easily in our heads. It's the music. The light of the screen brings a movie to life, but the music often is what provides its soul. And today, we tend to think of movies in terms of their directors or the actors and actresses that star in them, but their composers deserve just as much recognition, really. The great ones, their names are legion, but they all deserve to be heard. And many of them we've already mentioned here, but you know, names like Elmer Bernstein, Alexandre Desfla, Danny Elfman, Jerry Goldsmith, Bernard Herman, James Horner, Maurice Jarre, Trevor Jones, uh, Enric Korngold, Henry Mancini, Ennio Morricone, Alfred Newman, his son Thomas Newman, Basil Polidorus, Rachel Portman, not enough women in this crew, 
A.R. Rockman, for those of you who follow Indian cinema, he's scored like everything in Bollywood. Uh, Alan Silvestri, Howard Shore, Max Steiner, John Williams, Hans Zimmer. There are so many more and so many more who are kind of getting started and just starting to create these magnificent bodies of work that are well on their way to becoming the masters of tomorrow. All these folks are artists whose work is so worthy of the spotlight. So I'll just say to everybody out there, the next time you fall in love with a movie, take a moment to dig into its music. You might not just discover your next favorite album, but you might get an even deeper appreciation for the movie it came from. There is such sweet, sweet magic in these notes and how lucky we are to hear it. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, Joe, and Guillaume, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. Uh, now that y'all are testing your mics, I am. I feel like I'm actually in the podcast, which is surreal. I've, I've I've gone all the way through season one. I'm a big fan, and I'm. I have to say, if I haven't said it before, I'll say it now. I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, I, I think I think you should say that on air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's so good.